Welcome, and let's first talk compliance. I'm Catherine Short, Partnership Marketing Manager at First Healthcare Compliance. Thanks for tuning in. This show is brought to you by First Healthcare Compliance as part of our commitment to provide high-quality, complimentary educational resources. We help create confidence among compliance professionals throughout the United States. Please show your support by taking a moment to provide a review on Google, Facebook, or iTunes. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Today, we are speaking with Melody Malike, president of Revenue Cycle Coding Strategies, a dynamic company that works with physician practices, healthcare systems, billing companies, and other industry stakeholders to provide auditing, education, and other collaborative consulting solutions to meet their coding and compliance needs. And today we will be talking about AUC, delayed but not gone. First Healthcare Compliance is a proud partner of Revenue Cycle Coding Strategies, and our clients have enjoyed many webinars and previous podcasts by this team of experts. 2022 was scheduled to be the official implementation date for AUC CDS implementation, but the 2022 proposed rule threw everyone a little curveball. While a delay has occurred, it does not change the direction of the program or the need to prepare and test as providers continue to either prepare their own practices or bridge the gap with imaging facilities, it is important that everyone be on the same page through the CMS implementation and remaining testing period. Working through the charge capture processes and identifying where gaps currently exist will ensure that plans can be quickly implemented to address these concerns and ensure that the new January 1st, 2023 implementation date is successful and that no one's revenue is disrupted. Melody will share implementation stories to assist listeners with their final preparations. Before we begin, I would like to mention at First Healthcare Compliance, we strive to serve as a trusted resource for compliance professionals and celebrate their hard work and dedication with our Compliance Super Ninja recognition. Here we are spotlighting Super Ninja Sharon Miller, Administrator at Gulf Coast Dermatopathology Laboratory. Sharon says, patient care is paramount and by creating a culture of caring, compassion and respect, we have succeeded in all that we do. We try to promote a family atmosphere, which in turn translates ultimately to patient care. Congratulations, Sharon. Our team is honored to have the privilege of working with you. So, Melly, it is a true pleasure to speak with you again on First Talk Compliance. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Catherine. It's always a pleasure. Yes, it is a pleasure. I remember we had a great time speaking in New Orleans a while ago now, prior to the pandemic, and it seems like a lifetime ago now. It definitely does. It's amazing how quickly time has flown, for sure. I know. I know. Well, today we're going to talk about AUC and the delay and what's going to be happening. So as we begin, can you first give us a brief background as to what AUC is and why and for who it exists? Sure, absolutely. So AUC, Appropriate Use Criteria Consultation Requirement, got introduced back in 2014, so it's been a long time ago, in the Protecting Access to Medicare Act. And it was originally scheduled to go into effect 
January 1 of 2017. And the program is requiring ordering providers that are ordering any advanced imaging modality studies of CT, MR, PET scans, nuclear medicine scans to actually consult this official clinical criteria that's been developed by providers um, to ensure that the exams that they're ordering are the most clinically appropriate for patients. Okay, great. So what do you think then are the biggest challenges for ordering providers for AUC? I think for ordering providers, the biggest challenge is is doing performing the consultation in the in the most efficient way and the the most non disruptive way. I mean, the reality is no one's in love with this program. I mean, we just have to kind of call call it what it is, right? I mean, ordering providers as a whole, especially when you get into the specialists, you know, this is what they do. I mean, talking to a neurosurgeon about ordering an MRI of the brain or a CT of the brain, or talking to an orthopedist about ordering a joint study, those kind of things, you know, for them is is a little like, why am I being required to do this? I, you know, when you get into some of the other areas of of general practitioners, internal medicine, family practice, where maybe they don't have as much um, exposure to some of the all of the imaging modalities for different areas. Some might say there's some other opportunities related to that, uh, but, I, but I do think that's one of the big challenges with it. So you've got a system, you've got a process that no one's really fond of, so how do you implement it in a way that's as efficient as possible and least disruptive, utilizing your system so that you're, you're meeting the intent of the requirement, but not having to put in a lot of extra work? Because we already know when you think about taking care of patients, people talk in terms now of how many clicks is it in an electronic medical record and, and how, you know, how much you're staring at the screen versus is talking to the patient. And so implementing this so that it's not adding a lot of additional time and tracking that is important. I mean, the, the studies that I've shown say that if you implement it correctly, you should only be adding seconds to the process, not minutes to the process. So aim for the seconds, not the minutes. Then what about for radiologists? What do you think are the biggest challenges for radiologists for AUC? Well, I think for radiologists, you know, and, and really it, the challenge for them is they're put in this position where they're really having to be the police officers in some ways, right? I mean, if somebody doesn't do the consultation, they're the ones having to say, well, gee, I can't do this scheduled outpatient for your procedure, um, you know, for your patient until you do this. And so radiology gets put in this position of enforcement in a lot of ways. And I think that's a difficult position to be in. So again, how do you do it in a way that's efficient for the ordering provider, but also you're not losing your own revenue because the radiologist and an imaging center or a hospital, whoever's doing that technical component, are the ones who have revenue at risk if the ordering provider doesn't do the consultation. So they're the ones that have to put that that hurdle up, so to speak, uh, to say, you know, gee, I'm sorry, Dr. Smith, you didn't do this consultation. I can't do this study for this patient. And so, if, especially if a physician, a radiologist is hospital-based, they're now also counting on the hospital to get that data for them from the ordering provider and have it get to their staff or to their billing company in a way so they're not losing revenue. So, I think the radiologists do have a lot of risk because they're a step away from it if they're in a hospital-based practice. So I think that that's one of their big challenges for sure. Okay, and then what about in the emergency department? Do you think that ED orders are ever gonna be excluded? You know, it's an interesting question. I, I think the short answer that a lot of people would say is we hope so. But right now, I mean, CMS has made it very clear, including the final rule this year for 2022 that said that ED as a whole is not exempt. I mean, 
CMS has been focused on orders in the ED for a long time. So that's one of the reasons they want to address it. But I think the challenge is that the penalty of this is that ordering providers that don't, quote, order the correct exams and become the outliers are going to be put on 100% prior authorization. Well, that doesn't really mesh with an ED physician, right? You don't do prior authorization in the emergency department. And so how do you, how do you find that balance? And, and I think it really speaks to a, an even broader issue around, you know, insurance companies are now controlling when you go to the ED versus not. They've increased their co-pays for it and even have some payers that say if it's determined that you didn't have an emergency, then we're not going to pay for the visit. And this is kind of CMS's way of trying to control some of that. And, and I don't know that it's necessarily the best way. And, and I think we're going to continue to see it evolve. And it's one of those things that as we officially finally get into that penalty phase and they start collecting data, then maybe CMS can use the data that they receive as a way to help Congress change the law or change the implementation of the policy to actually achieve something that's meaningful. But as it's written right now, I would argue it's, it's probably not as meaningful in the ED setting as maybe they intended it to be. What do you think the probability or possibility is that Congress will ever intervene, possibly cancel the program? What are, what are your thoughts on that? You know, that's always a big question because it goes through these cycles where you'll get some of the professional societies will band together and, and they'll go to Congress and they'll pitch it to be the big issue. And I think it really just depends on what's the hot topic. And right now, uh, some of the cuts that have come to reimbursement for some of the specialists is really the hot topic. And that's going to take precedence over implementation of AUC. So I think as we get closer to implementation again, it's going to depend on what's going on in the industry. What's the big focus point? If there's not a lot else being focused on. We may see it pop back up. We may find that there are, um, you know, uh, congressmen or women that are interested in supporting it and that it goes through. But if otherwise, it, Washington is so unpredictable. I think it has been for a long time. Is it, you don't know what they're going to do. So I wouldn't count on it. A lot of times we hear people say, oh, I've, you know, my specialty society says it's never going to happen. No one can say that with any confidence um, with it. So at, at this point, we just have to follow what CMS has said. It's going to go into effect and we just have to keep going down that direction. Because the other piece I'll just throw in is, you know, people have spent millions and millions of dollars to implement it. So if you've already made everybody go through it, how do you maximize it and then what do you do with it versus just saying, okay, never mind, we're not going to do it. That that wouldn't, I don't know that that would necessarily make everybody happy either. I've talked to a lot of hospitals that have said, even if CMS said we're not going to do it, they would still have it implemented just because they want to make sure the right exams are ordered. Okay, so actually that leads me to another question. What if a facility has a provider who refuses to comply with the ordering requirements? What do they do then? That's a good question, and that's something a lot of organizations struggle with because you really, you know, you get into that clinical versus non-clinical, and it's really difficult for a non-clinical um, not only person, but non-clinical type of entity to go tell a physician what to do. And so there's got to be ownership of this at a at a clinical leadership level. So whether that's the chief medical officer, what you know, what whatever that comes out to be, they have to be bought in and they have to be the ones that's communicating with those ordering providers. And so clearly whether they're employed or not employed is going to come into play. If they're employed providers, you've got a lot more of, of control and influence because that's going to come affect their contract. If they're not employed, you know, you 
you can say basically I'm not going to do the study if it's for a scheduled outpatient and you know do you risk losing their business the rest of their business you do but how many studies do you want to do for free as well I mean the one thing when you think about this it, you have to really look at your payer mix too in it because we're talking about Medicare only. So if I'm in an organization where let's say that I have a huge amount of commercial payers and Medicare is a very small percentage, that how I approach this with my providers may be very different than if I'm running 40, 50% Medicare, right? So if I'm running 40, 50% Medicare, I'm going to be doing an awful lot more education. I'm going to be really working hand in hand to implement more with systems to make it easy as possible because I can't afford to lose any of that business. If I, if I'm a very small percent Medicare and maybe I've got a few physicians who are sending me a lot of those patients and I lose that percentage because they choose not to be compliant, that's probably not going to hurt me as much as other scenarios. So I, I do think there's not a one-size-fits-all solution for things. Every organization has to determine its financial risk, its compliance risk, and be very proactive to communicate so that they minimize their losses. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to First Talk Compliance brought to you by First Healthcare Compliance as part of our commitment to provide high-quality complementary educational resources we help create confidence among compliance professionals throughout the United States. My guest today is Melody Malik, President of Revenue Cycle Coding Strategies about AUC, delayed but not gone. Please show your support by taking a few minutes to provide a review of First Healthcare Compliance on Google or Facebook. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. So Melody, what are some of the outstanding questions regarding AUC implementation that you would see to answer to in 2022? That's a good question. I mean, they CMS answered a lot of questions in the 2022 final rule, but there are still a few things they haven't. Like for example, they indicated that instead of denying claims that they would reject them if it didn't contain the appropriate information which on, on the surface sounds great, okay? You're, you're not going to make me go through appeals, but what do you mean by what types of things are you going to reject? So are you saying that if it doesn't have a modifier and you think it should, you're going to reject it, but what if the ordering provider didn't do the consultation? And I knew that, whether they were, you know, a, an observation patient or scheduled outpatient, is there a way for me to submit that claim and know that I'm not going to get paid, but yet still have it follow the process? So I think that's one of particular concern for people is what's going to happen in those scenarios uh, related to it. I think understanding what the modifiers are going to be, there's some new modifiers they're going to give us and they haven't communicated what those modifiers are going to be yet. So I think we're interested in those and what are the rules around those modifiers? Also, are they going to give us a, when you, when you look at explanation of benefits, remittance advices that come back, there's, it's a set code set that says, so it's standard, okay, this particular code means a denial or rejection for this, creating those. And, and so that way we know, are there going to be denial or rejection codes very specifically around AEC? We believe there is, but we need to know what those are so that we can build those into our systems as well. So they've made some, some adjustments, but it, it's been pretty vague. Yeah, Is for some of saying? it. Yeah, I mean, some of it, some of it has been vague. At least it's a good next step uh, for mm -hmm. some of those kinds of things. But for some of them, they definitely uh, could do more. They definitely could give us more information for sure. Okay. What do you think the biggest system challenges are going to be with implementation? 
you know, it's it, it really it's a, it is a system issue in a lot of ways because we don't want to have a lot of human intervention. But I think ensuring that all of the systems are talking to to each other as they should, whether it's a ordering providers, electronic, you know, health record talking to the hospital systems or communicating with an imaging center and then making sure as things are flowing through a hospital system that the data goes to the radiology practice as it should. I mean, I've heard stories where, you know, it's it's not giving uh, their billing company uh, the modifier in the G code. It's giving them, it's telling them the name of the system, the mechanism, but then it's it's giving them quote the score from there and the mechanism and saying, oh, it's a seven or it's an eight. Well, then somebody's physically having to go through and look at that and go, okay, well, that's going to be an ME modifier. We shouldn't have to have any human interaction with this or human intervention rather with it. It needs to be everything that flows through with everything. The other piece of that is you've obviously got to have IT resources. And, and just like with everything else going on, IT resources can be very thin in some organizations. Or maybe the hospital's going through a big, you know, system implementation for something else. Or whatever the reason is, you almost have to line up those resources months in advance. And so if I'm an ordering provider, I'm going to want to get on the list sooner rather than later. If I'm the radiologist, I'm going to want to make sure that my needs are taken care of sooner rather than later so that I'm not in a situation where all of a sudden I'm, I'm saying, oh, oh, I need help with this interface. And they go, well, gee, I wish you told me three months ago because we can't address this until April of 2023. So that, I think that's a very real risk for a lot of organizations. Okay. Speaking of the score, regarding ordering patterns, how can ordering providers get their data on their score regarding these ordering patterns? You know, it depends on the system that they're using, the mechanism. The mechanisms all should have some type of standardized reporting that are built into them, at least I would say. And if they don't, I'd be surprised that they, that they were, were approved as a mechanism. So there should be some standard scores in there. I would also recommend, though, that organizations look at what, what are some other customizable uh, reports that can be done, you know, and, and usually there's ways to take that raw data and do something with it, whether you're pulling it out in a CV, you know, and um, CVS file or CSV file, let me get my, not confuse it with the pharmacy, CSV file, and you can convert it into Excel and you can manipulate it and do a lot of things with it. Um, but if you're using the hospital system, they have that data. And so I would just request it. I would ask them to have data for your particular practice on a monthly basis and ask them to sort it by provider as well as by modality, and they definitely can do that for you. Okay, and then what's a piece of advice that you would give to both ordering providers and interpreting providers? I think, you know, just kind of overall advice is, is don't assume everything will work smoothly um, out of the gate, because when you look at it, it seems pretty straightforward. Okay, we have a mechanism, I do a consultation, that data flows through, goes through the system, and I would almost apply Murphy's Law, right? Whatever can go wrong will. So give yourself time to think about all the different scenarios. Think about all the different places you might send your patients. Do all of those scenarios work? How can I make sure that I have a way to do, to take care of the patients, do the orders I need to do without disrupting the patient. I think for the radiologist, a little bit of the same thing. You know, what what do I not know and how do I partner with the hospital? Because basically a hospital practice is, I think, your biggest risk for radiologists. Imaging centers are more straightforward. Is, is what do I not know and how do I partner with the hospital IT and hospital radiology department to make sure we've thought through all the scenarios of where we get patients from and how are we going to get that information so that I don't have a cash flow disruption 
caused by denials. Okay, and then what are some key areas that you think organizations should focus additional time on during this process? Well, the ED is definitely one uh, that's a big deal uh, from that standpoint. So ED would be a particular area. I think observation as well, just to make sure that the process flows are there so that there's not any disruption. Um, I would argue that scheduled outpatient should be the most straightforward. Those are non-emergent cases. We should have time to go through that particular process uh, related to that. But yeah, I think those are probably the two biggest focus areas. And do you think there's still any any other unknowns from CMS that you think need to be addressed? You know, I'm sure there is, but it's one of those things that you, you don't know until you get there. I will say as it continues to evolve, there's always something that comes out every year as an organization is working through implementation that they share in the industry that the group kind of says, wow, we didn't think about that. So uh, I think it's to be continued. There absolutely will be. And I'm sure there's going to be things that even as we are implementing um, officially and we get into that penalty phase in 2023, that there's going to be things that come back. That, that we didn't think about either. And I think we have time for maybe one more question here. So do you think that are all imaging organizations, are they offering some kind of mechanism for ordering providers to consult? Or what's your, what do you think on that? That's a good question. I think the most are that I'm hearing just because they recognize that the harder you make it for an ordering provider to do the, the, um, you know, consultation, the, the less it's going to, they're going to send stuff to your organization. So I do think that most places are doing that. That said, there are places that are just probably going to say, hey, here's a link to the free website, you know, go ahead and use it and then, you know, print this off and send it to us type of thing. So, you know, I think people, I really have to look at the competitive nature of where of the landscape of where they're at and how much that's going to impact them. And, you know, it's a balancing act of, of being frugal <laughs> and making things easy for your ordering provider. I mean, Personally, I recommend making it as easy as possible for your ordering providers. Yeah, I, I would think so too. I would think so. I wanted to ask you, do you have any other advice for, for our listeners as we wrap up? I would just say just stay tuned, you know, as we're going into 2022 and just there's going to be updates that come out. Pay attention to them. Listen to them. Think about the operational implications of everything. Um, it's not just about the, the what does CMS require, but how do we operationalize that from whatever our perspective is to make sure we make it as easy as possible on our providers and transparent to our patients. Perfect. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for coming on today, Melody. This is really, really great information and um, very much appreciate it. So thank you. It's fantastic. Appreciate it. Thanks, Catherine. Appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. And thanks to our audience for tuning in to First Talk Compliance. You can learn more about the show on the program's page on healthcarenowradio.com and lend your voice to the conversation on Twitter at FirstHCC or hashtag FirstTalkCompliance. You can also email me at Catherine Short at FirstHCC.com. I'm Catherine Short of First Healthcare Compliance. Remember, compliance is the key to achieving peace of mind.